All right, we are uh, back after a couple weeks. Uh, I was gone on vacation last week. We had a very good week. Uh, and uh, I appreciate uh, Jim filling in for me while I was gone. And he shared with me that it was just a breeze teaching that lesson. <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyway, I appreciate you doing that, uh, Jim. Uh, it's always good to have guys in the class like we do that can fill in and and uh, stand up here and take the take the uh, slings and arrows of <laughs> of a hostile class and uh, and are willing to do that and and give us material that is worthwhile to think about and edify us. So thank you for doing that, Jim. Appreciate that. Uh, two weeks ago, we started in Romans chapter 2. We're looking at kind of the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 16. And and uh, and when we were together two weeks ago, we uh, looked at really the first four verses of chapter 2. Let's read this passage and then see if we can kind of go back and remember things. But I just realized I forgot to do something else. So let me do that now. Uh, I wanted to make one other uh, kind of housekeeping announcement type of thing. When we were gone uh, last week uh, to uh, to family camp, um, I had the opportunity. Uh, one of the one of the speakers, the guy who spoke to, was primarily a men's group in the morning. There were a few ladies there, but it's primarily a men's group. It's a guy by the name of Steve Price. He's a uh, medical doctor. He's a uh, emergency. He's been a doctor for about. 30 years or so, I think, 25, 30 years. And he's an emergency room physician uh, in one of the Kansas City hospitals, has been uh, for years. Uh, he's also uh, an, an elder pastor in uh, his church and does quite a bit of speaking. And uh, so oftentimes he speaks in one of the sessions when we're together at, at our family camp up there in Missouri. Uh, and this week he spoke to what was, like I said, primarily a group of men uh, on the subject of a man after God's own heart. Of course, it was primarily about David and it was four sessions. But his second session in particular, he talked about David and Bathsheba. And how does that fit into the picture of a, a man after God's own heart? Uh, and I asked Steve if I, could, uh, if I could post his message, the audio, the recording of his message on our website. And he, of course, quickly and graciously gave me permission to do so. And uh, so when I got home, I did. I posted it. It's on our website. It's available. And I want to encourage particularly you guys to listen to it. Uh, it's about an hour long, so it'll take a commitment on your part to listen to it. But uh, and I know it's not necessarily an easy thing to listen to. Uh, he's not indelicate, but he is forthright in his message. There were some women in the in the room uh, so there's nothing that uh, that women can't also listen to, and I'm sure you would benefit from it as well. But particularly, it is directed at men. And so uh, our website, of course, is w. Uh, let me get a marker here that works. www. Uh, herebibleteaching.org. And it 
and it is on our resource page. So when you go to our home page over on the left, it has a link to all the other pages. And the resource page uh, is entitled Things to Grow With. And yes, it ends with a preposition. Uh, and, uh, and if you go to that page, there's a whole list of resources there, actually, if you're not familiar with it. There's a whole list of resources, links to various uh, videos and audios and, and all kinds of different resources there. Uh, there's also, in case you ever um, don't happen to get a study sheet or whatever, there's always the study sheet for the upcoming lesson is there on the resource page and other things like that. So if you go to the resource page, things to grow with, you'll see the uh, there'll be some links for first. There'll be a few links for your uh, for the class resources like study sheets and outlines and that sort of thing. So there's a few of those. And then right below those, uh, there's a there's a description of Steve Price's message. Uh, and I think I have that entitled an important message for all Christian men. So you'll see that in red. There's a description there. And then the title of the message is actually a link. And you can just click on that link and it will immediately go to another page and begin to play for you. Or if you wish, uh, you can download it uh, to your computer. And instructions are there at the top of the resource page on how to download the various resources. So you can either listen to it directly on your computer or you can download it. It's an MP3 file and then do with it whatever you need to do. Put it on your iPhone or whatever. But I would really like to encourage every one of you guys to listen to that message. Uh, uh, he speaks very honestly. He's very honest about himself and he's very honest about us. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's a, it's a, it just it was a very helpful message for me to listen to. And of course, I've heard a number of messages on David and Bathsheba and some have been better than others. This is among the best. Uh, so I would encourage encourage you to listen. I'm not going to say you have to because <laughs> uh, God is your judge on those matters, not me. Uh, but it would be worth your hour to spend listening to Steve Price talk about the subject of David and Bathsheba. So I just wanted to mention that and share that. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 2 and pick up in verse 1. Let's just read the whole passage and review briefly uh, and then see how much more we can get done on these verses today. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature or instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Okay. Well, uh, and you got to really put your thing caps on here and go back to those first four verses that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Let's uh, see what we can remember. See what we can dredge up out of the, the deep recesses of our memory about what we talked about two weeks ago in those first four verses. What do you remember? Uh, the other way around. He shifts from third person to second person. Yes, he shifts. Yeah, so he's been in, in, the, in chapter one, he's been talking in the third person, and now he shifts to the second person. Okay? And that's because Paul here is using a literary technique we call diatribe. That's right. What is a diatribe? Now, there's more people in this class than Sarah. I'll, I'll use Sarah all I need to, but some of you go to you. <laughs> a laundry soap. <laughs> no, that's tied. That's tied. <laughs> what is a diatribe in a literary, uh, as a literary technique? What is it? Pardon? Well, yes. Uh, not so much a lecture as a what? Dia? Pardon? Dialogue, okay. And who's in a dialogue with? It's a discussion you set up with an imaginary opponent. Okay. Supposing what they would argue against you, then you present your argument. Okay, okay, exactly. So it's this kind of ongoing dialogue or debate or argument or whatever you want to put it that you're having with an imaginary opponent. I don't know if you do that, but I do it all the time. <laughs> Uh, I not only do it sometimes when I'm talking to others, but I do it a lot in my own mind. Uh, I, it's, it's always easier to argue with somebody if you're in control of what they say. <laughs> and so oftentimes when I'm trying to think something through, I'm, I'm imagining another person out there and I'm kind of dialoguing and I'm arguing with them. Okay. And uh, when I'm really worked up about something, I do that a lot. Okay. Well, this is a verse about that. Pardon? There's a verse about that. Okay. It says that by deliberating, you discover the truth. Okay. All right. By deliberating with yourself, you yeah. discover Yeah. Truth. Well, we hope we are. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this, is, so this passage consists of a diatribe. And who is Paul's kind of imaginary opponent out here that he's debating with? What kind of a person is it? 
And you can answer, Sarah. If there if there are some aren't gonna answer a moralist, okay? It's a person who's a moralist. He's he's the person who looks at Romans chapter one and says, I'm not like that. I'm better than that. And not only am I better than that, but I think all those people are scumbags for being that way, okay? So he's the moralist. He's the person who judges others for the things that we do, that they do. And when we, as we were getting started a couple of weeks ago in our lesson, we took a moment to kind of compare the moralist of chapter 2 with the person Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. And we found that there were some striking similarities and, and at least one striking difference. What are the similarities between, what are the ways in which the moralist of chapter 2 is similar to or like the person in Romans chapter 1? We listed three different ways that they were the same. Okay, they both do the same thing. They act the same way. So even though the moralist is looking down his nose at this other person from chapter 1, he actually is guilty in some way of doing the same things. What else? They are both without what? They are both without excuse. Okay? And they are both without excuse because they both what? They both practice what's wrong and uh, no. They've clearly seen. They know. They have a knowledge of what's wrong. Okay, so they're both the same in that they they have a knowledge of what is wrong. They're the same in that because they have a knowledge of what's wrong, they are both without excuse and they both practice the same kinds of things. Okay, those are the ways that they are the same, but there is one way in which they are different. And Teresa kind of touched on that just a second ago. How are they different? Chapter one, they give party approval and chapter two, they look down their nose. Okay, exactly. The person in chapter one approves of others who act the way uh, that he describes there in chapter 1, yeah, even though they know such behavior is wrong. But the moralist judges those who practice such things. So that's the difference between them. So the moralist kind of sets himself up as a judge of others. And this is the kind of judging that Jesus condemns. Jesus doesn't condemn discernment. Jesus does not condemn us uh, using Scripture to understand and look at somebody's life and say, no, that, that isn't right the way that person is living. That kind of thing is uh, we're expected to do. But the kind of judging that Jesus condemns is the kind of judging where somebody is taking the speck out of another's eye while he refuses to take the log out of his own eye. It's a hypocrite. It's the self-righteous judge. Okay, That's the kind of judging that Jesus condemns. And that's what Paul is addressing here. The person who is the self-righteous or the hypocritical judge, he does these things himself, and yet he looks down his nose. And we contemplated, as we talked about those things a couple of weeks ago, we contemplated, is this really true? Do people really, do people really do this? Do people really look at others and judge them for doing the very same things they do? Is that, is that like human nature? I mean, it sounds a little like, you know, somebody's got a little hubris there to, to do that, but are they, you seem pretty sure they do there, Ron. Do you? I just get tickled. I've seen people before 
who voice their opinion about someone like you. They talk so mean, or they are so, and it, they are exactly the same way, and and they can't see it in themselves. And I'm, and I'm, I put myself in that class. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of anything wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can ask your wife. I'm sure she can find something. <laughs> Oh, uh-huh. yeah. If you've ever done that, you'll see it because yeah. the anonymity of the web allows people to make these comments about yeah. about the article, and then a lot of times, depending on the, on how uh, hot the topic it is, it disintegrates very quickly into discussion and pointing back and forth about each other, and, and yeah. you know, it's really clear that they're doing the very thing you're talking about. Yeah. And the reality is, I think we've all been there. Right? We've all done it. You know. I've done it. You know, the double standard, the projection, uh, projecting on others the things that we ourselves are guilty of, uh, uh, measuring others by a standard different than we measure ourselves by. We're all guilty of that. Okay? That's the kind of person that Paul is wrestling with here in Romans chapter 2. It's the kind of person who thinks he does not fit into the description of Romans chapter 1. And so... Uh, and, and, and so he uh, looks at others who behave in that way. He ignores his own sins. He ignores his own faults. And he judges others. And, uh, and in his judging of others, he not only is overlooking the sin he's already committed, but he's adding sin upon sin because Jesus has prohibited that kind of judging. And so, so in our judging others for the things we do ourselves, in our self-righteous and hypocritical judging, we are adding sin upon sin. Okay? And so that's the kind of situation that Paul is dealing with. Now, yes, Ron. I'm just going to say, here's a classic example of this. I heard a person say one time, you know, he wouldn't forgive me. And I can't forgive him. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great one. That's a great one. Well, you know, and we laugh at it because it's so, you know, it's so obviously foolish. And yet it is so intrinsic to our nature, isn't it? That, that we all do that. And so when we look at others who do that and we laugh about it, uh, because it is in some sense uh, a bit humorous when you see uh, how blind we can be. Okay. Well, so now one of the reasons that the, the moralists, Mr. and Mrs. Judge, as I called them uh, last, the last time we were together, one of the reasons that Mr. and Mrs. Judge do this, judge others for the things they've done themselves and just kind of ignore their own faults, is because they're not thinking right about a couple things. And Paul brings that out in verses 3 and 4. What are the two ways particularly that Paul brings out that Mr. and Mrs. Judge aren't thinking right? What's the first one? Verse 3. What is that... Okay, what he's saying there in verse 3 is they think somehow they're going to escape the judgment of God. Okay, So, even though they look at others and they see others do these things, they think somehow, and, and they're doing the same things themselves, and they know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, yet somehow they are le- living under the illusion that they are going to escape the judgment of God. Okay, now why they think that is 
You know, it could be any number of reasons. It could be because they think their sins, you know, that they don't measure up to quite the scale of their neighbor's sins. Uh, uh, it may be because like the Jew, they think, well, I sinned, but yeah, I went and I offered sacrifices. So I covered and that took care of the sin I, because I obeyed the law and I went and I offered the sacrifices. And so I've covered my sins. So I'm covered. I'm OK. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to escape the judgment of God. And, and, and in this thinking, they are wrong. We are wrong when we think that somehow we're going to escape the judgment of God. Even though we acknowledge and know that we have been wrong and we have sinned uh, and we think, well, God's going to just, you know, He's just going to overlook it or whatever. Uh, that's the first thing. What's the second thing in verse 4 that they do? They think lightly of the riches of His kindness, His patience, and His tolerance. Okay? So they know that God has not judged them, that God has not come down on them yet uh, for their sin. And they just kind of think lightly of that. And we talked about that a little bit. What do you remember that we said about thinking lightly about the riches of God's patience and tolerance? Why do they think lightly? Or how do they think lightly? of God's patience and tolerance. Well, after you've been let go for quite a while, either God really doesn't care or God doesn't exist. Okay. So let's assume here that they, because they're the moralists, they believe God exists. But they just think that God really doesn't take it all that seriously Himself. Okay. It's that whole principle of Ecclesiastes because sentence against an evil deed is not speedily executed. The hearts of men are fully set in them to do evil. Okay? And so it's the idea that God's really not bothered by my sin. He's bothered by your sin because your sin's worse than my sin. Okay? Even though we're doing the same thing, yours is on a greater scale. Okay? So God's really bothered about your sin. I have no idea why He hasn't judged you yet. But the reason He hasn't judged me is because He's really not all that bothered. Well, if God isn't really bothered all that much by my sin, then His patience really isn't all that big of a deal, right? If I'm not bothered by, if I'm not really terribly bothered by the color of shirts you wear, I mean, I wouldn't wear shirts like that. But you know, you know that, you know, there's something about that salmon shirt there, Tom. I just, you know, I. But it's okay. You know, I'm not going to say anything. In, I'm not going to say anything in public about it, Tom. I'm not going to. You know, okay. So, uh, so if I just kind of blow it off, then my patience and my tolerance with Tom is irrelevant. And, you know, it's not a big deal. However, if my sin is a really big deal to God, if it really is a stench in his nostrils, and if he really is outraged and full of wrath for my sin, then his patience and tolerance becomes a very big thing, right? And so we talked about how God's patience and tolerance is not just God kind of going, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's not that. But rather his patience and tolerance is like a dam that God has constructed to hold back his wrath. And that his wrath is actually accumulated. And that's where we go on now into verse 5, where he says... He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
And so he says to the moralist, he says, what you're doing here is you're taking, you think you're going to escape the judgment of God and you're thinking lightly of God's patience and His tolerance and His kindness. You're thinking lightly of that thing. And as you're doing this, constantly you are continuing to sin. And as you are continuing to sin, this ocean of water, this ocean of judgment that's being held back by the tolerance and patience of God is being added to and added to and added to. You know what it's like when you have, uh, when you have, uh, uh, we would that we could have a little bit of this here in Oklahoma right now, but when you have those seasons of really heavy, heavy, heavy rains and they go on and they go on and on and on for weeks and weeks and weeks and they begin to worry then, you know, about the dams, right? They begin to worry about whether the dams will hold, okay? Well, that's the situation you and I are in because we are under the wrath of God. We are under the peril of God's judgment and wrath. And every time we sin, every time we think a thought that's displeasing to the Lord, Every time we speak, Jesus says, a careless word. Not just the bad words, but the careless words, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Every time we speak a careless word, we are adding to that reservoir of wrath that is building up behind this dam of God's patience. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the story, uh, the, the true story about the uh, uh, Teresa and I watched a program on this just a few weeks ago uh, about the, and I'd, I'd heard about this many years ago, that the, the British during World War II had a program to develop a bomb to explode the dams on the Rhine Valley in Germany to destroy their industrial uh, capacity. Uh, but it's really hard to, you know, back then, nowadays we have smart bombs, back then it was really hard to figure out how to bomb a dam, okay? You had to get the bomb in exactly the right place and it had to, you know, and they, they just weren't that accurate with bombs. So the British set about to figure out a way to blow up the dams in the Rhine Valley. And it was an extremely complex project, engineering project. They had to figure out how to, they couldn't come in from the front and drop the bombs for whatever reason. They couldn't figure out, they, they, they hit them in the right place or whatever. So they figured they had to hit the, they had to hit the dam from the water side, okay? But if you drop a bomb on the water side, you know, it, there's all kinds of things. So they had to design a bomb that they could literally drop and skip it across the water like a rock. Okay? So they were going to skip these bombs across the water till they hit the dam. But if they blew up at the top of the dam, at the top of the water, it wouldn't do that much damage. So it wouldn't accomplish purpose. So they had to figure out how to make these, these round bombs that they built spin. So that as they skipped across the water, they're spinning, okay? But they're spinning, I think, they're spinning, I think, anyway, they're spinning in the direction wrong. So that when they hit the dam, the spinning motion of the bomb causes the bomb to spin down the dam to the bottom of the dam and then to blow up at just a very exact rate. So you can imagine it was a tremendous engineering feat to figure out how to make all these things or exactly where to drop the bomb so that it would, you know, bounce at just the right number of times and they had all kinds of failures and, 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 and the powers that be uh, for, for a while, they, they, they weren't buying this program and so they had to prove that it would work. 
And eventually they got it to work and they managed to blow up, but I don't know, two or three, four dams or something along the Rhine River and they got it to work. Okay. And so then all of a sudden here are the Germans and all of a sudden their dams are blowing up that they thought were so secure. And they built these. These are massive dams. And I saw pictures of some of them. Massive dams. And they thought they were safe. And all of a sudden, these dams are blowing up and the water is rushing down and destroying cities and, and factories and, and lives and all sorts of things. <laughs> well, that's a picture for us of what awaits us. As we, through our stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, store up wrath for ourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man, Paul says, according to his deeds. And then he goes on and he says, uh, he says, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul announces, Paul begins to argue here then about this righteous judgment of God who is coming. And when God judges, what is the measure by which he judges? How does God judge? According to Paul in these verses. According to his deeds. Okay? He judges according to his deeds, whether he has done good or bad. Okay? Now, it's very easy for us at this point, because we're reading very slowly through Romans, we're going through Romans very slowly, and because we are, uh, Peggy. Oh, okay. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, great. Okay. All right. Super. I just thought you forgot. No, that's fine. I thought you just forgot. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, okay. Um, so it's easy for us because we're going through Romans so slowly that we kind of lose the lose the big picture. Okay, we don't want to lose the big picture. So it's very easy when we're reading this. Uh, it's, uh, when we're reading this, to think that uh, somehow Paul is suggesting then that a man can be saved if he lives a good enough life, right? Because he's saying God judges according to the works, and then the good people who persevere in doing good and so he's going to reward with eternal life. Okay. Well, we have to remember what Paul is doing here. Paul is baiting us. He's reeling us in. Okay. What Paul is doing is presenting, he's began, he began there in, in uh, the middle there of chapter 1 and all the way up through chapter 3. He's presenting a picture to us that slowly but surely he's kind of taking away all of our options. Until by the time we get to the middle of chapter 3, we're going to realize we are in big trouble, folks. We are in big trouble. We are sinners in the hands, to use Jonathan Edwards' words, in the hands of an angry God. Okay? And there's really nothing we can do about it. Okay? That's what Paul's doing. But he's taking us step by step. So now he's brought us to the point of explaining how God judges. And God judges according to our works. He doesn't say we're saved by our works. He doesn't say we're justified by our works. 
but we are judged by our works. Okay? And so God is going to render judgment according to every man's deeds and to those who are good and persevere in doing good, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Okay? So at this point, the moralist may be inclined to say, oh, okay, I can go with that. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're thinking? Okay, I can go with that because I'm pretty good. Okay. But when we think further about what Paul says here, he says that those who are selfishly ambitious and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, and a couple of verses later, those who do evil, to those there is wrath and indignation uh, tribulation and distress. Now, the question is, do you fit in that category? Are you someone who's ever been selfishly ambitious? And we're not talking even about the outward manifestations. We're talking here about just the motivation of your heart. Has there ever been a time when the motivation of your heart was not to seek for glory and honor and immortality? but rather just to be selfishly ambitious? Have you ever done that? Have you ever not obeyed the truth, but instead obeyed and right? Have you ever done that? If you have, then you fit into this first category of people whom God is going to judge according to your works. Well, you say, no, 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 wait a minute, Rick. I really fit in the second category because I'm good. I, I persevere in doing good. Oh, Persevere means you always do good. Have you always done good? Have you always sought for honor and glory and immortality? Have you always, always done good? There never been a time when you slip back, or maybe I should even be maybe a little more intrusive here. Are there not times today? Has there not been any time this morning since you got out of bed when you failed to persevere in doing good? We don't have to answer this question. No, you don't have to open that. (laughs) What I'm getting at is if the dam breaks, we are in serious trouble, folks. Because we don't fit in that second category. So Paul... It'd be a mistake to assume that Paul's saying anybody fits in the second category. He doesn't say anybody fits there. He's just saying, this is how God's judgment works, folks. Those that do good, this is what they get. And those who do evil, this is what they get. Unfortunately, what he's going to say, what he, what he hasn't said in black and white here, he will say in black and white in the next chapter when he says there is none who does good. No, not one. There is none righteous. There is none who seeks for God. All their throats are open sepulchers. That's Paul's description of us. So Paul is not arguing here that there is some kind of justification or salvation by doing good works. What Paul is trying to show us here is what kind of deep trouble we're in. 
And and so then they then the question goes, well, is that really true about all people? Because at this point, the Jew reading this might be going, well, you know, I've got the law. And and I keep the law. And, you know, when I sin, I go make sacrifices for my sins. So Paul makes it very clear. He says, uh, Paul makes it very clear when he says, it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, he said that once before. He said that back in chapter 1 in verse 16 when he said the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek, right? Okay. Uh, but now he's saying this judgment of God is going to apply to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the Jew, though he thinks that somehow because he as a Jew is a recipient of the law, He's somehow going to get through this whole thing scot-free. What Paul says is, well, no, you got it wrong. Actually, the judgment's going to start with you. That's where the judgment's going to start. To whom much is given, much is also required. It's similar to what uh, the Apostle says later when he says, let judgment begin with the household of God. That's where judgment starts, folks. Judgment starts with those of us who stand in a privileged position. You and I, as Christians who know the Word of God, judgment starts with us. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's just like it's like Paul says of the teacher, or excuse me, uh, uh, not Paul. Uh, uh, James says of the teacher uh, that the teacher stands in this privileged position of speaking truth, and he says because he does, he incurs a stricter judgment. I was thinking about that a lot this week. That what the Scripture teaches is that every time I stand up here and open my mouth, the judgment gets stricter. And so for the Jew, even though he has the law, he's not off scot-free because he doesn't fully keep the law. Okay. Now, Paul uses the idea of law in a variety of ways in the book of Romans. I've counted nine. Okay? Uh, so, as we go through Romans, we're going to encounter this idea of the law over and over and over, or of law, the word law, over and over and over again in the book of Romans. <clears throat> so, sometimes the word law is used. Uh, just very simply, kind of by itself. What did I do with my marker? Ah, here it is. Uh, he uses the word law by itself. And when he uses the word law by itself, kind of like this, just small letter L, uh, the translators usually put it with a small letter. It's just a reference to law in general. Okay, It's just kind of a general principle of righteousness. An example of that would be uh, here in verse 14 and also in chapter two or yeah, chapter 7, verse 21. And then sometimes he uses uh, the phrase the law and translators typically capitalize the L when it's used in this sense. And this is almost always, I think perhaps always, whenever it has the definite article in front of it like that, 
that it is the Mosaic law that he's referring to. Uh, it's repeat, referred to repeatedly throughout Romans, particularly here in chapter 2, we encounter the law as being the Mosaic law. Uh, sometimes it refers to the entire Pentateuch, okay? the first five books of the, of, uh, the Bible. And then we have something that's called the law of faith. Okay. And the law of faith is that principle whereby righteousness is achieved by faith in Christ. An example of that is in chapter 3, verse 27. And then we have the law of God. Okay. And uh, the law of God appears to be synonymous with the law or the Mosaic law. So when he's talking about the law of God, he probably means the law, the Mosaic law. Okay. Uh, and I know you're writing furiously and I'm letting you do that, but actually I'm going to hand out a sheet here in just a minute with these references on them. So you'll have the references, but I, I'm doing it this way so you'll think through things and not just take the handout and go, okay, I don't have to think about this. Okay. So I'll give you the handout here in a second when I'm done. Um, the law of God appears to be synonymous with the Mosaic law. Then we have the law of my mind. That Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, verse 22. The law of my mind appears to be a reference to myself as distinct from sin. Or the law of sin. Or the law of God. So it's kind of distinct by itself could be a reference to our conscience. Okay? That's in 7.22. And then we have the law of righteousness. Okay? The law of righteousness appears to be a reference to the law, i.e. the Mosaic law, by which Israel pursued righteousness. Okay? So, the law of righteousness is kind of the idea or the concept that if I do all these things that were written in the law of Moses, then I can achieve righteousness. Uh, or it could be uh, that, it's, that it's referring to the law as, uh, referring to the Mosaic law as, as a one law among a type of laws. So, all laws that we think of as being the means by which we achieve righteousness, among which is the Mosaic Law. Then we have the Law of Sin. Okay? And the Law of uh, Sin, or sometimes the Law of Sin and Death, is indwelling sin. It is distinct from the person. You need to keep that in mind. When we get there, we'll make a big thing about this. That the Law of Sin and Death is distinct from the person. It's, part, it's in the person. It's indwelling in the person, but it is distinct from the person. So it's the law of sin and death in chapter 7, verses 22 and 25 are a couple of examples. Then we have the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And the reason I'm pointing all these out to you is when you encounter the word law in Romans, you've got to stop and figure out what's he talking about. You can't just always assume that you know. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ, or sometimes referred to as the law of the Spirit, is the law which overcomes in us the law of sin and death. Okay? That's in chapter 8, verse 2. So we have in us this law of sin and death uh, that we talked about here. 
the law, the spirit of life in Christ is that law or that principle that is working us that overcomes the law of sin and death. And then we have the law of works. And the law of works is that principle or belief that righteousness is achieved by works of righteousness or by keeping of law or the law. Okay, and that's in chapter 3, verse 27. I'll hand these out. I, I decided to make these real quick so the formatting's a little weird on them because I hacked them out real quick this morning. But, but there's a list of them for you and you keep that in your mind as you run, go through Romans and you encounter these various uh, uh, descriptions or, or various uh, references to law. You'll, uh, you can use that as kind of a guide to help you think <clears throat> through what exactly is Paul talking about. Well, so what Paul then says here in, in Romans chapter 2 is he talks, starts talking about the law being the Mosaic law and the fact that the Jews have this Mosaic law, but we also have the Gentiles who do not have the law. So when he says the Gentiles do not have the law, what is he saying? Given what we've just learned. They don't have the Mosaic law. Okay. But he says they do have a law. Okay. What does he mean by that? It's our very first definition here. And you've got a handout now. So you can read your handout back to me. Okay, it's just law in general. So they have some kind of a idea or concept of what's right and wrong written in their hearts, he says. And when he says, when God judges, when He judges the Gentiles who do not have the Mosaic law, what measure will God use? Because the Gentiles don't have the Mosaic law. So... So by what will, pardon? By what? But but what's the measure of their works? What's the measure of the Gentiles' works? What's the measure of the Jews' works? How do we know whether or not the Jew is righteous or good? How do we measure it? How do we see whether or not he's sinned? Whether or not he's kept the law, right? How do we know if the Gentile is sinned? Whether or not he has kept. A law. The law that's written in his heart. Yeah. Okay. So every person has within them this moral code, this moral law. Polluted, corrupted, obscured, admittedly. But every person has this moral law within themselves. And God judges without partiality. So God doesn't judge and say, well, you've heard the law. So you get off scot-free, but you've not heard the law. Talking about the Mosaic law. You've not heard the law, so I can judge you because you've not heard the law. But God does not judge according to those who have heard the law. He judges according to those who have kept the law. That's how God judges. And we have the Jews over here and they say, well, I've heard the Mosaic Law. I've got it and I know it and I understand it. But he's still a moralist. And God says you're going to be judged by that law. That's what he says right there in those verses. And he says concerning the Gentile who has this 
innate moral code that has been programmed into him at creation. This, this law of God written, he says here in these verses, on his heart, that person will be judged according to that law. So every man will be judged according to the light that he has. Every person will be judged according to the light that he has. The problem is, every one of us, when we're judged according to the light that we have, how are we found? Guilty. We are found guilty. And so finally, Paul there, in verse 16, tells us about when that finally, ultimately is going to happen. He says, on the day when, according to, the, to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, so, we have the Jews over here and they have the law and they go through this whole ritual and they offer sacrifice and everything. But as we learned quite clearly, the sacrifices on the altar never suffice to cover sin. They only to erase sin. They only suffice to cover it temporarily. And the mistake that the Jew made was he thought when he offered his sacrifices on the altar, because he offered his animal sacrifice on the altar, he was forgiven. He was not forgiven. It was a picture to tell him how his sins could be forgiven. And when he mistakenly trusted in the sacrifice he made upon that altar, he still was a man standing with his sin before God. On the other side, we have the Gentile, and he has this moral code written in his heart, and instinctively he has his conscience telling him this is right and this is wrong, alternately accusing or defending himself, and that tells us something right there, that sometimes it's accusing him, which shows he does not keep his law perfectly, even though it's written on his heart. We should make a distinction, incidentally, that this law written on the heart is distinct from the law that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31-33, where he speaks about the new covenant and the law written on the heart. That's an entirely different thing. Okay? That, is the, that is the empowering spirit indwelling the people of the new covenant so that there is now this living law within the believer that actually empowers him to live righteously. That's a different thing than the kind of thing Paul is talking about here. The thing Jeremiah was talking about was something that was in the future from Jeremiah's day. The thing that Paul is talking about is something that's been true about man since creation. The law of God written upon his heart. Okay, well, so now we have finally this ultimate judgment of God that according to Paul's gospel uh, is coming in this future time when God will judge everything, everyone, according to the secrets of his heart. Now, this gets pretty scary. Because the moralist, which probably would be most of us, you know, before we came to Christ, the moralist thinks he's doing pretty good. Even though he does all the things of Romans 1, or many of the things of Romans 1, he thinks he's doing pretty good because he's managed to put on a facade. So we all walk around, don't we, with our facade on with our little charade, okay? And people look at us and they go, oh, there's Rick. He's a pretty good guy, okay? When in reality, I've just kind of got it covered over. You can't see it. Most people can't see what's going on inside of me. 
But it says of Christ that he did not entrust himself to people because what? He knew what was in their hearts. And it is this Jesus who taught us that it is not merely the external things for which we will be judged, but for the thoughts of our heart. So he says, uh, for example, in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, he says, uh, you know, he says things like, well, you know, even if you look on a woman to lust after her, you know, you've broken the law. Or he says, if you're just angry with your neighbor. Okay. How many times have you been angry with somebody and never shown it? Just in your heart, you just harbored that anger. According to Christ, that incurs the wrath of God. So, so it's not just the external things we do, but the very thoughts that we entertain and we feed upon. Those bitternesses and those resentments and those hatreds and those lusts. Those things that we entertain in the mind and nobody ever sees them. But Jesus sees them. And Jesus said, those things will be judged. And not only is it the, in those, those thoughts of the heart that Jesus said will be judged. You know, this is the Jesus that everybody always talks about. You know, the loving Jesus and all that sort of thing. This is this Jesus. And he says, all those thoughts in your mind, God sees them and they will be judged. But not only that, but all those little sins that some other people see, but they're little things, right? So they don't really count against us, right? Jesus said, every careless word. Have you spoken a careless word today? Have you spoken a careless word since you got out of bed? How many careless words are you going to speak before you go to bed? Jesus said we will be held in account for every careless word. Now, here's the frightening thing. This Jesus who said those things about being judged by every thought and by every careless word, He's the judge. He's not just telling us it's going to happen. He is the judge. That's what He says here who will judge the secrets of men's hearts through Christ Jesus. And so we come here to the end of verse 16 in chapter 2, and you and I are in a mess. We are in a predicament, aren't we? Because we are under the threat of the wrath of God. And there is only one thing that is keeping us from being swept away and flooded away by this wrath of God and that is this dam of God's patience and tolerance as He waits for something. He's waiting for something. But by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 16, we still don't know what it is, folks. We still don't know what it is. And you know what? We're not going to know what it is for a while. Because Paul's been... He's been kind of reeling us in. Okay? And for, for those of us who are Gentiles, he's pretty well got us where he wants us, but he's still got a problem with the Jew. Okay? The Jews are still going, ah, okay, well, maybe the moralist Gentile, okay, yeah, him. But the Jew is still thinking, I'm, in, you know, I'm still in scot-free. So in verse 17, he's going to start really working on the Jews. Okay? And by the time we get to the middle of chapter 3, 
He's going to have us all reeled in. And we are all going to be crying out with Paul as he cries out at the end of Romans 7, Who will deliver me from the body of this death? We need a Savior, folks. We need a Savior. Okay? Next week we'll pick it up in verse 17. Uh, there yeah? There is no church.